All right. God, here, here I am talking to the master of podcasting. <laughs> and, and I remember when I came on to your podcast, um, Andy, I was incredibly nervous. Really? You know, yeah, I, w- I was pretty nervous because I, I'd never been interviewed on a podcast before. So oh, I had it. no idea. And of course, you've done many hundreds. And now I'm feeling incredibly nervous again because here I am now interviewing the mock. The master podcaster. <laughs> but no, I'm 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 absolutely thrilled that you're able to join uh, our sales transformation podcast series. Yeah, well, <laughs> Thank thanks you for, for inviting me. I mean, we had such a good time when you were on my show. I'm looking forward to talking we, again. We did. Okay, so of course uh, our listeners may not know you, so I'm going to say a few words about you so I can set some context. But I'm also going to ask you to share a little bit of sure. your history. So, who is Andy Paul? Well. Um, He's an award-winning author. Uh, now, I believe, with three books. Three books, yes. Three books. One just recently published, which we're going to be talking about quite soon. He's regarded as one of the top 10 LinkedIn influencers in sales, which is pretty amazing. I looked at the number of followers you have, Andy. You have many more than I do. Um, <laughs> great respect in that sense. Um, I, I think, are you the, can I call you the godfather of the podcast business? Because you started in 2015. Well, I, yeah, early on from the sales podcast, for uh, sure. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to call you the godfather, you yeah. know, the, the patriarch. Yeah. Of like sometimes the, the OG I get called. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, who haven't you interviewed? You've done over a thousand podcasts. I mean, you've interviewed uh, Harvard lecturers, you've interviewed authors, mm-hmm. you've interviewed senior leaders. It's a, it's a complete uh, spectrum. Yeah, I mean, even SDRs and account executives. Yes, uh, exactly. for the whole the whole panoply of, uh, of uh, people involved in sales. Yeah, it's just been amazing. Um, you've been a professional seller yourself. Mm. You've been a vice president of sales. Um, and Maverick. Yeah, I guess to some degree. <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> well, as, as I think more on that. Well. I think I think more on that later. Yeah. Said, said, said in a very positive context. I think you're prepared to challenge conventional norms, and I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit as we go into mm-hmm. your book. Um, and finally, you're the only person that I know who's guessed the company my father worked for based on your understanding of where I was born. Oh. <laughs> Do you remember that conversation we had? Uh, uh, vaguely. Cable and wireless? Cable and wireless, Ascension yes. Island. Yes. That was it. Yeah. Um, and I felt very privileged that you um, included me on your podcast series, you know, when I recently published my book. Um, well, I said that was a great conversation because I really enjoyed your book as well. So Okay. Well, thank you. Um, and so I'm thrilled that, that it's uh, – You've now accepted our invitation for you to join us. And um, we're here primarily to talk about your brilliant new book. I've really enjoyed reading it. I got some questions to ask you about it, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think before we go into it, can you tell us about Andy? Tell us your story. <laughs> Where did it start? <laughs> Where did it start? <laughs> well, long, long time ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in. Not that I need to know that, but I grew up in the middle part of the United States in Wisconsin and and uh, went to college in California and came out of school with uh, no discernible job skills. So I ended up in sales um, and 
first job out of school was working for a company called Burroughs that no longer exists in that form, which was at the time the second largest computer company in the world. And like many of the large tech companies today, IBM, Xerox, Burroughs had these uh, extensive sales training programs. They would run new hires through. And uh, great, great introduction to sales because uh, yeah, I was out um, working in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was selling, you know, at that time, computer systems were <laughs> roomfuls of metal that uh, <laughs> I was selling into the construction industry. And mm. uh, I was like getting my MBA the first couple of years because I was out talking to all these CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs that built these construction companies, a wide variety of construction companies, road construction, bridge construction, and so on. And I knew nothing about business really when I started. And I said it was this education that I got from from being able to talk to these, these uh, leaders and ask them questions. And for me, that... The great takeaway from that was, wow, if you show up and you're interested in what, what they, in the client uh, and you ask them questions, they'll invest their time and they'll answer them. And mm -hmm. so, <clears throat> you know, for me, that, that sort of set me on the path pretty quickly. I say, well, okay, yeah, I don't need to have all the answers. I just need to have questions. And that... You know, served me throughout my entire career because I moved from selling computers to uh, into the personal computer business in the early days. I worked for Apple in the early days and then uh, spent a good chunk of time selling complex satellite communication systems, very technical, and which I was not, I said, I'm not technically trained. I'm a history major. Um, but the ability to, as I said, show up and ask good questions that help the buyer think more deeply about the problems they're trying to solve and the outcomes they can achieve really was sort of my superpower mm -hmm. in sales. And uh, yeah, it took me on this path where yeah, this fascinating career selling these systems in six continents, um, everywhere, but Antarctica and traveling right. the world, under really huge corporations and traveling places. I probably would never have traveled otherwise. Um, I think you, you mentioned in your book about the travel. You've done sort of 3, 000, is it 3 million air miles or something like that. And it made me question, what sort of person actually logs how many air miles they, well, they do? I mean, it's what, a lot. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was sort of estimating based on you know, points yeah. and so on. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, there was a period of time yeah. where I was pretty much monthly traveling overseas. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, you start adding up the miles, especially a lot of it was in Asia. Yeah. No, it's really, really interesting to, to, to learn about your, uh, your background. So at some point you decided, I guess, to take a step back from corporate life and yeah. pursue a slightly different career. Is that, is that correct? I mean, it I, is, yeah. So yeah, I had, because of the travel, actually, I'd missed one of my daughter's birthdays. I know. And, I read. I read that in your book, and yeah. I, I, I actually know it's on selling with purpose. One of your yeah. podcasts, yeah. and uh, I think one of uh, they were talking about the pandemic, and one of the benefits was that someone was able to, um, you know, be there for his daughter's. Mm -hmm. But but you mentioned that you got promoted to this role of international sales director at a week yeah. after your one of your children were born. Well, yeah, so. after my first child was born, and that then, was your first child, and yeah. then yeah, about twelve. 11, 12 years later, yeah, I had vowed I was never going to miss an important, yeah, 
yeah, event in the family because of, yeah. of work. And I did. And I vowed to myself at that point, okay, <laughs> that's going to change. So All I right. went from <clears throat> really use that. I'd been thinking about starting my own business, but really that was the impetus to say, okay, let's just do this. This is getting out of control. And yeah, it took a step back to sort of regain control of, of my life. Um, and so I said, I sort of had this vision of what I'd wanted to do as a consultant, which was to help smaller companies learn how to sell bigger systems competing against bigger competitors, which they oftentimes are loath to do. And that's sort of been my specialty I'd somewhat developed in my career. So yeah, yeah. For a period of eight years, I was that dad that was at every event for my kids, uh, soccer games, theater recitals, uh, lacrosse games, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever that they got going on. I think people started, started taking pity on me. Perhaps it's like, doesn't he have a job? He's always here. <laughs> That's great. But I was able to work it out you know, with my schedule, with yeah. my clients, uh, that I had that flexibility. I just, it was a condition. And yeah, didn't miss a thing for eight years and sort of started ramping up again. So... You became a, you know, a consultant mm. uh, giving advice to these smaller companies, and and then how did you get involved in in the podcast area? Because that's been, you know, that's been such a, an amazing journey that you've been on. Yeah, well, I think that it was a combination of things. One is just, it sort of started with after I'd written my second book of getting more serious about creating content, uh, which I hadn't, I'd been blogging some before, but hadn't really committed, I guess. And it, the podcast seemed like a, a great way to do it because yeah, I'm creating content, but also I get to talk to all these smart people and I figured what better way to sort of stay completely abreast of not the leading edge of things is to talk to people at the leading edge of yeah sales and the technology and so on. So yeah, that was a sort of dual purpose there. Such a smart thing to do, I would say. You know, I mean, it's terribly interesting, you know, sort of listening to the podcasts. Uh, we have quite a few people who've now listened to your podcasts mm -hmm. and really enjoy them. And, uh, and of course, you learn so much. Well, you, you know, do. As you, as you go, go through it. Yeah, I think you're, I'm sure, experiencing this as well. Is, is, uh, yeah, where else do you have the excuse to talk to, <laughs> I said, all these smart people uh, yeah. who, who come share knowledge yeah. with you and... Yeah, I mean, every time I speak with anybody that on my show is I learn something, and yeah. yeah, no, it's it's been well, it's it's been a great journey. I don't think it's not over by a stretch of imagination, but it's yeah, we're thousand fifty episodes and seven years, and um, it's still something I look forward to every time I talk to somebody new. So, um, you must have. You know, just the context of how much you learn through the process of doing mm. podcasts is, is massive. Have there been any sort of particular standout podcasts, apart from ours, of course? Of course, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but no, seriously. <laughs> have, you know, what for you have been some of the, the standout podcasts? Or, um, you know, that's one question. The other question I have, which mm. is, you must have an impression of the industry through the process of doing so many of these inter mm. interviews. And I, I'm interested to know what your, when I talk about the industry, you know, the sales training right. industry, because right. you're listening to all sorts of people talking about their points of view. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, yeah, interested in whether or not you, you form in, formed an opinion about the sector as a whole, <laughs> oh, as well yeah. as 
are there any standout interviews that you've done that you thought, wow, that was pretty amazing? Um, yeah, it's hard to, hard to pick, uh, it's one or two episodes cause yeah. there've been a lot of great conversations. I mean, none that, uh, unfortunately none that really, really stand out as memorable just cause I think we keep having really good ones. Um, okay. I know it's difficult because, you know, you're going yeah. to get a load of phone calls after this. And why yeah. don't you mention me? <laughs> you know, I don't want to you're, put you on the, the spot. And... But I think, <laughs> I think if we go to the second part of the question or the second. Okay. Question, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in part of this informed why I decided to write this next book or the motivation behind this particular book was that, yeah, my takeaway is one of the takeaways is we're just not getting better at this, at sales that, despite all the advantages of technology that we have, um, arguably, yeah, we're no better at this business of B2B selling than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. In fact, you know, our, our mutual friend, Frank Cespedes would say that, you know, arguably we're probably worse. Um, mm. And so I was really curious because I get the sense, it's like, well, okay, well, why is that? Why are we? seeming to struggle with the same things that we've struggled with for, for decades. In fact, why are we sort of continuing to amplify using technology to amplifying known bad behaviors as opposed to changing what we're doing? So that, that a lot of that understanding came from talking to people on the podcast is this, this idea that we become modern just because we've, like I said, automated certain level of tasks uh, in sales without fundamentally addressing the fundamental issues that exist as to why we struggle to win business with our buyers. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because you are quite um, sort of critical of, of the um, sort of perceived but out of date norms, you know, yes. particularly in the opening chapters of your book, <laughs> you know, you, yes. you sort of make your case pretty strongly, I would say. Yeah. Well, when you look at the, the data that, that comes out about sales performance and granted, there's a lot of variables at, at play here, but you know, we see from reports like CSO insights and others that other analysts that, you know, quota attainment upon sellers is dropping uh, we see from Forrest and others that close rates, win rates are dropping. You know, just talk to sales leaders on my show about, you know, their performance within their their business. And it's just, it's like we've accepted this uh, lower level of performance because we think we can sort of make it up on volume. That technology enables us to do that. And, you know, I thought with the pandemic, we had an opportunity given how quickly things changed in terms of going from, you know, in person to, yes, there are a lot of virtual meetings going on before, but even more virtual meetings, you know, exclusively virtual meetings for a while with clients is there was an opportunity to reset the terms of engagement with our buyers is to think differently about how we engage with them because we had this complete disruption and how business was taking place. And we seem to have let that moment pass without making substantive changes. And just one example is, you know, in, in research for my book, I sort of, this is one of the things I sort of knew the answer to, but I, I was sort of curious about it. So you Google 
sales process, you know, B2B selling process. And you get these, you know, millions of returns and you look at sort of the descriptions of them and you look at the images of them because there's all sorts of, you know, images online as well. And it's this, you know, linear stage-based selling process that, I don't know, IBM, I think, started teaching 100 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's fundamentally unchanged. It doesn't matter that we've applied technology to it or automated elements of it. It's still fundamentally the same process and has really nothing to do with the buyer. It's all about what we need. So, you know, the, the classic example I give is, you know, that, you know, one stage of that is discovery. Well, I mean, you and I both know is discovery doesn't fit into a neat little box, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be continuing to discover throughout the length of the buying journey of the buyer. That's just one small example yeah, of, yeah. of just how we're, we're out of touch with the buyer. Buyers don't think about it in terms of discovery. They do their own discovery. So I think, yeah, I had more of this in my draft. We decided to sort of save some of this material perhaps for another book, but I think until we start looking at the buying journey or the, let's say the sales process, it should be one process between the buyer and the sellers. They should have the same stages, right? Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we're off doing our thing and the buyer's doing their thing. I think there's so, so much about your sort of opening uh, stance, which, which, um, coincided or confirmed or was in alignment with with the journey that i went on as you know, mm -hmm. you know with 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 the doctor that i did and you know spent uh, two years interviewing customers before doing anything else asking mm -hmm. them how they wanted to be sold to and yeah coming up with some fairly um fairly fairly poor statistics of the numbers of salespeople who actually sell in a way that customers want um so, and I've sensed when we were on the podcast that you, that, that, that when I was on your podcast, mm -hmm. you, yeah, we, we, we had a, you know, sort of a mutual appreciation and perhaps of that there was a need to change and there was a need to look at sales through a different lens. Mm -hmm. And, and I think this is what's so interesting about your book is you've started to put some very interesting frameworks around you know, what are the sort of fundamental pillars that are required mm -hmm. in order for it, you know, in your view to, to become, um, su um, successful. Um, you know, I, I, can I start with the title of your book? Sure. And sure. I just want to ask, you know, sell without selling out. I mean, where did that title come from? And yeah, why, why that title? Uh, well, as yeah, I'd started using the, the phrase, I, my editor played a, a role in helping come up with the, the title, but I'd been using that phrase selling out in the, the draft manuscript as I was developing it just to, to define the fact that, that you're really sort of selling out your buyer, right? When you act purely with your own self-interests in mind. When you put your interest ahead of those of the buyers, then you are, you're selling out is the term I come up with. And so, yeah, from there, we, we wrapped it, wrapped it into the title, but I wanted to create a stark image for people about the different behaviors, right? As, as you can sell out or you can sell in, as I describe in the book and to think about it, like a lot of uh, mindset, the way you conceptualize a lot of mindset is you're, you're on either ends of a spectrum. 
right? Um, so at one end is selling out, putting your interest ahead of the buyer. Other end is, is selling in. We're, you know, we're all a mix. We're somewhere on the spectrum. And the idea was to try to help people understand how to move further toward the selling in, selling in end of the spectrum as opposed to selling out. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's not a term that I'd, you know, it took me a while to work out why right. why why selling out, and I think I knew what you meant. And of course, it became sort of clearer as we, as as you know, as, as I read your book, what mm-hmm. what, what that framework uh, kind of uh, of of meant. And I, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was also the way that you illustrated certain points of view with of course, a huge amount of personal experience. And mm-hmm. um, um, one, of the, uh, one of the questions that uh, one of your customers asked of you was, why, why should I buy from you? Yeah. And that was going back to your con- selling to construction days, I think. And it was, you, yeah. You just... <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> But it was an eye-opening moment. And you know, just yeah, briefly, the story was, yeah, yeah I, I was calling construction. So I was making a call on CEO of this large home builder. And it's one of those calls, like say that as a young salesperson, you make hoping, kind of praying they're not there. <laughs> because uh, you, you really don't want to be exposed for, for what you don't know. And uh, yeah, he, Turned out to be there. The receptionist said, yeah, he'd like to talk with you. And so CEO gathers me and takes me into his office. And I sort of launch into my pitch uh, sitting across his desk. And, you know, he holds up his hand, tells me, motions me to stop and opens his desk drawer and pulls out the stack of business cards bound by a rubber band made two inches high. And then takes a rubber band off and fans them out like a deck of playing cards and said, so. You know, these are all of the computer salespeople that have been bought here in the last year. And I haven't bought from any of them. So, Mr. Paul, tell me, why should I buy from you? <laughs> and the, the point of the story was that for me, that was this eye-opening moment because he wasn't saying, why should he buy from my company? He was saying, why should he buy from me? And... Yeah, as much as you don't necessarily want to, some may not want to believe it. The fact is, yeah, this is how the decisions are made. It's based on the buyer's experience with you as a seller. You know, increasingly, I believe, in, in so many categories where there's so much competition, certainly a lot of, of the software segments, um, it's certainly the case if there were, you know, take a you know, CRM as a, you know, as a category. I mean, there's continuing, even though Salesforce has this huge dominance, there continues to be new CRM systems pouring onto the marketplace. If you're a small, mid-sized business, you're trying to make a decision about which CRM package, you have the choice of 30, 40, 50 of them. Well, how do you distinguish? Well, you can't really. I mean, the products all look the same. So at the end of the day, it really boils down to, and Challenger has talked about this, Gartner talked about this, is it boils down to, the buyer's assessment of their experience with the seller. You become the differentiation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting. And when you first of all talk about relationships, I'll share a personal story similar mm-hmm. to yours actually in a minute, which is I'll never forget. Um, 
But um, there are some organizations who purport that it's not about relationships so much now. It's, you know, it's more about, you know, just bringing insight and information. Mm. And they play down the importance of that sure. in, in, in the sales process. But I think what you're saying, actually, in your, you know, from your perspective, and you talk about this with one of your pillars, you know, sort of connected, mm -hmm. you know, you, you talk about it as being possibly the most important thing in the way in which you connect with customers. You know, right. it's the why you, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to hear you, you state that fact so strongly. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. I, mean, I think the people who, who advocate that point of view that relationships aren't important, you know, playing to the audience to some degree, right. Is, is, Let's face it. I mean, there's there's you know new generations coming into the workforce who who grew up learning how to communicate differently than previous generations, where they didn't spend time on the phone and their message, their conversations and relationships were handled much more asynchronously than might have been before. And they're being thrust into a situation where they have to pick up the phone and call somebody. They have to talk to a human being, and it's not easy. Right, it's 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 a learning curve. I think it's you know a skill that's perhaps harder to pick up as an adult if you didn't do as much of it as a kid. Um, and so I think they're playing to this audience that's kind of just basically uncomfortable with that. And I think it does yeah. a disservice to them because yeah. humans aren't going away. <laughs> We're still going to be still at the center of buying and selling, and this ability to learn how to get comfortable connecting with people, building rapport. Uh, doing it virtually as well as in person are hugely important and doing it on a, you know, a synchronous basis. It doesn't mean you won't continue to use asynchronous methods of messaging because I use them and, and of course we use them. Of course. But yeah. at some point you need to build this connection. And I think where some of these other, you know, people that write about this are just off basis. They want to assume that if you say relationship, you mean friendship. And that's just not the case. I mean, that's, that's, Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that it devolves into that is, is sort of unfortunate because it's just, that's not what anybody's talking about. I mean, is the way two or more things, a relationship is defined in the dictionary is the way two or more things are connected. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling to someone, you're connected for the purpose of that transaction. You have a relationship, whether you want one or not. Uh, but it's part of the reason I use the term connection in the book instead of relationship is to sort of diffuse. Yeah diffuse that. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I just think they're completely off base and it's, there's so much nonsense that gets spouted about this whole thing is, is, you know, people saying, Oh, you don't need to be likable. It's like to be successful in sales. Like, sure. In an absolute sense, I guess you don't, but why wouldn't you be right? Mm. I mean, <laughs> it costs you nothing yeah. to be likable. So <laughs> why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last week on LinkedIn, I posted this post. I said, you know, it costs you absolutely nothing to be a good person. Sure. Oh, you would have thought I was advocating, you know, <laughs> death and murder or something. I mean, lots of people just got really incensed by that. It's like, no, no, it costs you everything to be good. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, you don't sacrifice anything, but the people, I think in business and in sales, they think that this is, you know, this is not a new issue, but I think it's it's been amplified some recently. 
is people think that they have to be like an actor on stage and then assume a character, right? A role that they play when they're selling to a, a prospect or they're in business. And that's, that's really damaging because first of all, you're <laughs> the people you're interacting with can tell in a heartbeat that you're putting on an act, right? When you're showing up as someone other than yourself, it's pretty mm -hmm. clear for the most part. I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but for the most part, it's pretty clear. And so it's this idea though, of just being yourself seems to scare a lot of people. And yes, you talk about sort of being human and, right. uh, and, 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 and so on. And I, you know, a hundred percent agree with you, uh, in your approach and, um, and yeah, yeah, we talk about authenticity, mm -hmm. um, and we also call on some of the research that have, has been done around, um, Julian Birkinshaw's work, which you're probably not so familiar with. He's a professor at London Business School mm -hmm. where he talks about sources of competitive advantage and mm -hmm. uh, talked about the knowledge era and now the post-knowledge era and the two dominant characteristics that he he shares in some brilliant um, uh, YouTube clips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really good. He talks about democracy, which is building up the emotional attachment between an organization and a brand. And of course the salespeople play such an important mm -hmm. role in that mm -hmm. emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. And he talks about um, ad hocracy as well, the ability to, to be agile and to think very quickly right. uh, on your, on your feet, right. um, which is again, something else I think you talk about, you know, in, in your book. Um, but yeah, and it's, the, I, but that's, and that's really critical. I mean, I think that yeah. along with that, I would add, uh, I don't have an ocracy to add to it, but is this um, tolerance for ambiguity. Yeah. You know, it's such a critical, critical skill for people to develop or mindset for people to develop. Yet, you know, part of what we've seen with, with, and this gets this idea about agile thinking is that one of yeah. the forces I talk about in a C in, in sales, this idea is we want people to conform to a process, right? We want our yes. sellers to use this process paint by numbers, uh, you know, make this a cookie cutter assembly line approach to sales, which is all great if you're maybe selling to a machine, but you're selling to humans who are infinitely variable and everyone you mm -hmm. talk to is going to be unique in their own way. Uh, it sort of defies, you know, this, this rigid following of process. I mean, you want process, you want frameworks, but within the umbrella of the framework, People need to have the freedom to be agile, to, to understand that things are going to flow perhaps a little bit differently. And that's where this tolerance for ambiguity comes in, is to be able to keep the bigger picture in mind and, and understand that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to follow necessarily a direct line from A to B and that's okay. We'll still make it happen. Yeah, you, you mentioned in, in your book uh, sort of quite a few instances of, of how you intuitively didn't feel that what you were trained to do, particularly perhaps during your sort of early days in sales, and you sort of went out and you did your own thing. Mm. And, and this is why I mentioned the word maverick because <laughs> earlier on, because you've clearly, you know, might not have been um, the easiest person to manage in a conventional sense, mm -hmm. uh, but you produced the results, you know, you, right. you, you've got what it takes. And when I was reading this, and I, I, I think I can identify with, with that myself, because I haven't, you know, had a traditional career, right? You know, so sort of being quite entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I want I equated with this uh, with the concept of the lone wolf, you know, which is, you know, sometimes the lone wolves are not, you know, because you're not necessarily a team player, you know, you're not, you, you, you know, you know that's not a good thing. You may be a, a great salesperson, but actually you need to look at a sales team across, you know, as a team. I, I don't know if you had a, a kind of point of view of where do you balance the sort of oh. challenge aspect with teamwork. Oh, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I was sort of the ultimate team player, I think, is okay. because I understood, especially as I was selling more and more complex systems that, yeah, I was the orchestrator, but there was a, a team of people that were making it happen. I wasn't operating on my own, but to the same extent, I would use my four pillars with my clients. I'd use it internally with the people I needed to have on my team. And I understood okay. that it was a competition for resources inside the company <laughs> in order to to be able to execute this opportunity. Um, so, yeah, actually, I was uh, on more than a couple occasions sort of pulled aside by a CEO and said, uh, you realize you're not setting the strategic <laughs> direction of the company. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, everybody I talk to says they're working on your projects. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, okay. Is that a problem? And so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think that this idea of sort of marching to your own drummer a little bit doesn't mean that you don't work in a team, a team fashion at all. It's in fact, I think my experience has been is it helps you rally the team that you need behind you to, to win more effectively. Because I think the, the pillars I describe in the book was ostensibly for, for selling to customers is really about collaboration, right? Okay. I mean, at heart, what you're doing is you're forming a collaboration with, yeah. with your buyers. Well, you, you know, as I talk about this, you can look at sales, one of two mindsets that I sort of frame at the top is one is you can say, okay, my job is to persuade somebody to buy my product and service. Or my job can be to listen to them, to understand the things that are truly most important to them, and then help them get that. And so if you're collaborating with, with colleagues inside a company, and wouldn't you do that same thing? Wouldn't you, the way, most effective way to get people aligned with you is to understand what's most important to them, and how you can help them get that. It actually extends to personal relationships. I mean, if you frame that, you know, if you want to have a good relationship with your partner, do you want to persuade them all the time to do what you want them to do? Or are you going to listen to them and understand what's truly most important to them and then help them get that? I mean, it just, it works. It's a, to me, it's like a basic, uh, you know, structure for any sort of human relationship, whether mm -hmm. you're applying it to sales or your colleagues or personal relationships. So I think we should talk about the pillars. If okay. Could go into them, and and it, you know they're very interesting words that you've selected you know, mm -hmm. for the pillars, and also the interrelationships between them. Because mm -hmm. um, I think there's a certain phrase um, that you you talk about connection, and it being cemented. I'm just quoting something no, ahead, from the book, which is why I'm sort of cemented into place by the um, the three other pillars, right? You know, which are curiosity, understanding, and and generosity. Right. Now, I mean, I'm sure it's taken you quite a bit of thinking to think of those 
pillars and why there's names and the interrelationship. So could you, mm-hmm. could you just talk through, sure. you know, why the four and how they kind of work with each other? Right. Well, and the, to me, the just four, cause the, <laughs> they're just four, the, the interconnection between them. And, and, you know, from my own experience working with so many people over the years and what I've saw worked, but yeah, it starts with connection. <clears throat> and I think that, that, you, know, you could say, well, the connection's the most important one in the sense that nothing else happens without the connection, right? So when people want to minimize this idea of relationships is I think what they're minimizing is their chances of success because you, <laughs> without building this connection, you'd never build the trust you need to have with the buyer. And the trust with the buyer is important not only for the ultimate decision to make, but more for the process of selling to them is that if that level of trust doesn't exist, then they're not going to open up to your questions. And that's what you mm-hmm. need. That's where the trust really first and foremost becomes important is, as I talk about in the book, I want to earn the right to stick my nose into your business, right? I mean, this is an image I want sellers to have is I'm not politely asking questions. I want to be a little bit intrusive because mm-hmm. unless I'm a little bit intrusive, I'm never really going to get the insights from you about really what is most important to you. What are the things you're really struggling with and what do you really want to achieve? So this connection and trust, yeah, everything sort of starts and stops there. So connection, build your rapport, find your common ground, build a level of credibility, a level of trust. That opens the door to your curiosity and asking questions. And in the book, I lay out sort of six question types um, that I find most most useful. Um and those enable you to gather information and start forming this level of understanding of what I said is truly most important to the buyer. And I think where so many sellers stop these days is that, you know, they're trained to say, look, here's our playbook. Great. Having a playbook is great. Here are the questions we ask. Great. But then they stop there. I'm going to ask Mm -hmm. these questions. I'm going to gather this information. And so what sellers have is a handful of information, but no understanding of why it's really important to the buyer. And it's being able to cross that gap between knowing and understanding that I think, again, sets apart the consistently successful sellers. And when you make that transition from curiosity to understanding is you then hopefully reach a point where you make the buyer feel understood. And then I think that really becomes such a critical milestone in the, in the sales when the buyer feels understood, then you've basically reached sort of agreement on what the target is. You know, prior to that, you're not really sure what you're aiming at uh, Mm -hmm. to use that, that terminology in sales. But once you reach that level of understanding, and you have the buyer's agreement on it, then yeah. Now you can take the next step with your generosity and the way you provide value to say, yeah, we can we can build towards a common vision of what success looks like. And we're all on the same page and we're fully aligned on that. Well, why did you use the word generosity? Well, because I think selling is fundamentally a generous act. I mean, I think that, that and I sort of break down this, this phrase, you know, when you, listen 
well, listening these days is a generous act, um, mm -hmm. to understand what's truly most important to your buyer, well, that's a generous act. And then helping them, that is an act of generosity. So I think when done well, selling is the ultimate act of generosity. Mm. Yes, I know you've been influenced by various people, including Adam Grant, I think, when you talk about generosity. And I like the way you simplified his language because he talked about uh, selfless giving and otherish giving. Mm -hmm. And you called it good giving and bad giving. Yeah. Uh, there were quite clunky words, but um, no, very interesting uh, research he did. Which yes. kind of supports the word. But it's, it's generally, you know, if you look at typical sales training programs, it's, it, you know, you wouldn't find generosity mm -mm. as being anywhere. Uh, anywhere. Well, in fact, in fact, this idea of, of giving even is sometimes looked down on. I mean, I yeah. sat through a, well, I suppose a keynote you've got presentation your, from yeah. a, a big analyst who I won't name yeah. who was talking about, yeah, being a giver is bad. And it's like, well, huh, clearly didn't read all of Grant's yeah. book because, yeah, if you're what I call an unrestrained giver or a bad giver yeah. in the book, sure, because that's that's sort of the old prototypical relational salesperson that's, you know, you're going to throw everything against the wall they can. They don't yeah. really not make an effort to really understand the buyer, just hoping they throw enough up against the wall, something sticks. Yeah. Yeah. As Grant says, that's. Those people in his book, he says, yeah, if you rank where people sort of succeed and fail, yeah, these unrestrained givers, they, they fail because they're not making the connection. They're just hoping that they're being good by, by uh, give, give, giving. Whereas, as Grant talks about, is yeah, the ultimate succeeders or successor, those who succeed the most are, in fact, givers who are giving with an agenda. And that's what you want to be. I, as I, you know, paraphrase Zig Ziglar in the book, you know, if you help enough other people get what they want in life, you get what yeah. you want in life. Yeah. And that's, it's okay to have that agenda with a buyer. As long as you're transparent about it. Yeah. Um, it's not, the agenda isn't, I'm here to succeed. The agenda is, I'm here to help you succeed. And if I do that, then I succeed. What you've not done in the book is you've not sort of gone into um, sales process and you know you you describe the four pillars in fact you've given a sort of point of view about process already which which sums up your feelings about it uh, probably quite very well um, but what would you describe these words as I mean they're are they characteristics are they skills I mean uh, you know yeah, they're, they're human attributes human attributes right yeah but that we can and trainable yes would you say absolutely yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like take curiosity, for instance, is you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, this person's naturally curious and this other person isn't. Well, everybody's born with the same amount of curiosity. Uh, unfor unfortunately, it gets trained out of them, I think, in many cases by school and family and work. Uh, you know, hey, enough with the questions. Just do what you're told type attitude which unfortunately is, is fairly pervasive, I think, in many sales organizations, is, yeah, it's a habit that can be trained just like any other habit. Um, you know, if you get it, uh, you know, we get, a, we get a dopamine hit when we're curious and we get an answer to a question or we learn something new, uh, this idea of uh, what they call epistemic curiosity. And, 
yeah, that dopamine hit that you get is just the same you'd get for modifying behavior with a, a new habit. So it encourages you to want to do more. So if I think if we can train people to be more question oriented, then yeah, they can start experiencing the value of asking questions and they'll be reinforced. You know, they'll develop those neural pathways that they'll mm. continue to want to do it. And there's, you know, things I talk about in the book, uh, you can use a sort of a training, this just one simple exercise I call the ask five rule, which is, you know, you practice this as, you know, you meet somebody in a social setting uh, at a, a conference, you know, but something that's not purely a sales uh, situation to, to practice is see if you can ask somebody five questions about themselves before you have to say anything about yourself. So you start training mm. yourself to lead with questions. Um, and maybe you find you won't get to five, but whatever. It's just, just it's the idea is to practice yeah, and just get comfortable with that. And so that's, yeah, I think curiosity being trained. I think understanding being trained. I laid out the three stages of understanding in the book is yeah. part of it is just making people aware that these things exist. And yeah, well, we, my company will be actually coming out with the training to help people with these things. That's great. And uh, I just wonder about something like generosity, maybe, you know, some, some people are naturally inclined to be generous and it's part of their sort of in their psyche. And, and that, that, uh, you know, I know the context of how you use the word in your book, but actually the, it's got to come from somewhere fairly deep. Yeah. But there's a, yeah. there's a fundamental reward that comes from, from giving that we all experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And some people may be more miserly than others. Yeah. But you know, I talk about in the section on generosity, it's it's, it's about acting with intent, right? It's, right? it's not just the default, but it's to say, yeah. look, I have to be intentional about giving you something of value that helps you get your job done. Yeah. And I think as people keep focused on the intent part, then eventually that becomes a habit as well. Um, yeah. So I talk about in the book is, you know, you should, you should be able to, any opportunity, if you're a seller or your sales manager coaching your sellers and you're doing a pipeline review, but as a seller, you should be able to answer you know, two fundamental questions about every opportunity in your pipeline, which is what does the buyer need from me right now in order to make progress toward making a decision? And B, as a result of receiving that value, what steps will they commit to take? And... Yes, that requires a level of intent and thoughtfulness mm -hmm. about what you're doing. And this is a challenge for some sellers because they're, again, sort of programmed to be somewhat robotic in how they move through their processes. And, yeah, we're, that's just not the profession we're in. We're in a very creative, human-centric profession, and yeah. we need to act accordingly. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I sort of totally agree. So it seems that the book has been written. I know, I know you've got one one chapter in there which is sort of talking about the role of the manager, mm. but it's been very much written, you know, for for the professional salesperson. Yeah, yeah, you sort of have to choose an audience, right? But yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but I'll, I mean, a lot of readers leaders are reading it and and uh, having conversations okay. with them because. Yeah. Yeah, they know it's for them as well. Um, okay. But yes, I do have one section specifically ad addressed to sales leaders, challenging them 
Well, I mean, you do. I mean, you know, talk about the challenges that you have within the industry. Is you, you know, your 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 current genre of sales leaders perhaps have have been brought up to believe that sales needs to be done a certain way, and uh, if they don't see the need for change and they don't see what the future you know could look like or should look like, uh, it's going to be quite difficult, you know, to get any kind of transformation in the way people sell. Yeah. Well, and if you're right, I think if we're on the path we're headed is we're providing an incentive to buyers to do it without the sellers to the extent they can. And because we're not able to help the buyers, you know, there's all this research that came out right halfway through the pandemic from various analyst firms about, oh, geez, buyers no longer want to talk to sellers. And it's like, okay, uh, they've never wanted to talk to sellers as far as yeah. I know. That's nothing new. <laughs> but they have more alternatives these days. Yeah. And if you as a seller, yeah, I think that may rephrase a little differently. Is, yeah, I think buyers never want to talk to sellers, but they need to talk to sellers. Yeah. And, you know, they need questions that they're not asking internally. They need perspectives they're not asking internally. This whole idea uh, sociologists have written about in terms of strong ties and weak ties. And, you know, when you're working with your colleagues, you've developed these strong ties. And one of the features of strong ties is, as one sociologist referred to it as, you all know the same information. So he says, what you have is you have, you share redundant information. Yeah. So if you're in the process of trying to make a change in a way, a substantive change, they're involved with making a purchase decision, the self-aware organization says, well, actually, we need people that we have weak ties with to come in mm-hmm. and ask the questions we're not asking ourselves and to share the perspectives, the new perspectives that we don't have because we've all homogenized all this information that we know internally. So if you can be that seller that can come in and offer the insights and the perspectives and ask the questions to help the buyer think more deeply and broadly about the challenges they have and the outcomes they want to achieve, then they've got time for you. If not, they don't. And I would argue that's always been the case, but I think it's perhaps more acute these days. Mm. Really interesting. Uh, what vision do you have, you know, f- for you, for yourself and the sector, the professional, you, you know, because you painted this very bleak picture at the very beginning. Yeah, <laughs> things perhaps haven't improved in a hundred years' time. Yeah, are we still going to be having the similar conversations or not? Yeah. Um, what's it going to take to get a shift? You know, what's it going to take? Well, that's that's a broad question. So I think I know. you know the the change has to come from on top. You know, there has to be a recognition that. Um, you know, sales is a performance-based profession, and we need to we need to modernize to the extent that we treat it accordingly. You know, I, one of the contrasts I always draw is between uh, professional football, UK football, uh, soccer, as we call it in America, which I'm a I huge. I think you're a Villa supporter, aren't you? Liverpool, please. Liverpool. Um, <laughs> okay, so you're doing pretty well at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, long, I got actually, that one wrong, didn't I? Yeah, Sorry. long, long time. Not, <laughs> not a bandwagon. I've been supporter of Liverpool for a couple decades now. Um, okay, 
is that um, I just lost my breath. Oh yeah, as a performance-based profession, is that yeah that you know you look at the way they staff you know modern football teams. Yeah, is they have director of performance. They have director. There's one I was you know, share with you. I was just reading about one one team uh, with their new new um, staff, but they, you know, director of mental performance, director. I mean, there's all these very specific things. Yeah. Nutrition that have to do with performance. And we are in a performance profession and there's this refusal to acknowledge it at the very top levels of corporations. Yeah. And yet professional sports, and it's not just football slash soccer. It's, it's, uh, you know, Baseball has been heavy into analytics for a long time. You know, others, this is, we're just not, everybody brags about data-driven sales, but they're just talking about, <laughs> you know, a process. Yeah. It's really math, right? It's not really science and data about it. Whereas we can use science. We have all the science of how to help people improve their performance, you know, from a mental standpoint, from a dealing with stress and their emotions standpoint to being, uh, even for business professionals, why shouldn't you be focused on your nutrition and your health and your fitness? Cause it will make a difference. Mm-hmm. I believe it's just completely ignored mm-hmm. and, you know, given lip service at best. And so I think, I think at some point, you know, the people at the top are going to see is that this is worth investing in. And I'll just give a perfect example. You know, it's, it's one example is that we know there's a mental health crisis among I'd call it a crisis among sales professionals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uncrunched, uncrushed had done a survey last year, you know, fully th- like three quarters of sales professional reports, some mental health issue, whether it's, you know, abundance of stress or anxiety and so on, but pretty high fraction. Yeah. We're in this, pressure, we're in this pressure filled. So if you're a self-aware CEO, why wouldn't you have a mental health professional on staff? If you had, if you had mm-hmm. 10 sellers, could you justify the cost of that? I bet you, you could easily in terms of increased productivity, uh, reduced lost days, you know, due to illness and so on. I mean, it's the data's out there, but you know, sales gets continue to be sort of treated as cannon fodder. Yeah, the last two years we've featured mental health in some of our big events here in London. And in fact, this week we've just launched a series of little video clips on our um, LinkedIn page mm-hmm. where we've invited sales directors and um, junior salespeople, senior salespeople to come and talk about it. As, right. as, as you know, so obviously it's mental health, you know, it's mental health awareness week at the moment and uh, certainly is in the UK. Right. There's an awful lot of focus on it at the moment. Um, I think it's changing, and it's it's rare to get senior sales directors talking about their own mental health challenges. Sure. Um, but actually, interesting to hear them talk about how they use it to drive performance, uh, which is also an interesting one. <laughs> now, how you manage your anxiety. Right. And and so there's lots of nuanced conversations taking place uh, at the moment, uh, which uh, which we're helping to facilitate, which is which is so interesting and needed. Um, yeah, and needed. And needed. 
yeah, I mean, I, it's I just, really needed. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I just, yeah, shake my head is, is you know, we're so far behind. Yeah. And, and so many of that dimension in terms of, you know, yeah. managing human performance. And we just put this expectation on sales yeah. leaders to say, look, you hold the title, thus you must know something about this. Yeah. And why would they know anything about it? They've never been trained in it. They've never been yeah, exposed yeah, to it. Um, and yet, because they hold the title, they feel yeah. vulnerable and say, well, I can't ask for help because yeah. they expect me to know this. And you've probably seen this in your own practice with just, you know, not mental health related, but just, you know, engaging with clients and, uh, you know, various levels of management saying, well, I, I can't ask the CEO to pay for this because he thinks I know this already. Um, mm. And we just have this sort of cycle of, I don't know, macho BS among so many sales leaders to think that, again, just feel vulnerable. And thus they put on this brave front that, yeah, you know, we don't necessarily need, we don't need to do anything about this necessarily or, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it has to start at the top and I think it's really yeah. the real top and CEOs have to lead the charge. They have to make their sales leaders feel sure. empowered to look at different ways to get things done. They need to give them the space to make change, you know, because the other thing that, that plays into it is especially in the tech world where, you know, the average CRO tenure is like, under 18 months at this point. Sure. So if you have a revenue leader who basically has one full accounting cycle to put an imprint on the organization, they don't have an incentive to make a change because they already have the feeling they're on a short leash. And if they make change, well, change, change is painful. Change can cause results to slow down for a month or two or three, while you a quarter maybe, while you implement something that's better for the long term. Mm -hmm doesn't happen because they're all afraid they're gonna get fired. Yeah, well, we could spend quite a lot of time talking about this. We're probably reaching the end of the uh, podcast uh, time. And it's <laughs> been an absolute pleasure having you uh, talk so candidly. And I, I'm very pleased we've ended up talking about this particular topic as well. So it wasn't one that I was uh, anticipating, yeah, but no, it's, it's, great. it's really you. important. And um, I love I love the lightness of your book. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed reading it. So congratulations uh, on producing such a great great book.